What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Charlie O'Connor, one of the smartest hockey minds uh, in the public sphere from a reporting standpoint. Uh, Charlie, you've been a man amongst boys when it comes to reporting. Uh, I mean, you're obviously you're unparalleled in the flyer space, but even from dealing with analytics, uh, looking at processes, uh, team building in general, uh, really glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, that's all very kind words. Not sure if I fully deserve it, but uh, but I appreciate it. In, in any case, uh, it's good to be on. It's good to uh, to chat hockey with you. I mean, you Penn graduates are always allowed on this podcast. Uh, there's a few brain cells in there. Hockey IQ. I mean, you're you're in the right place here, son. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. All right. Well, let's kick this off with uh, something you know very very well. Um, analytics. So you actually, I believe, were. You did a project yourself and were published on hockey graphs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Way I did um, way back in the day. I did one, one story and it, it, I mean, it was, it was an analysis, but I never really got, you know, as much into the hockey graphs world as I probably wanted to um, in, in all honesty, you know, a lot of it was that um, I was trying to earn a job in uh, you know, in journalism, you know, writing about a team. So I, I was doing a lot of work on that front. And then I'll be honest, I was a little like intimidated because, I mean, you have all those absolutely brilliant minds, you know, at hockey, particularly back then. Um, I mean, you had tons of people who ended up even, you know, getting jobs with teams. I mean, you had like Dawson Spriggings, who obviously just won the cup with uh, with the Colorado Avalanche. Um, you had, I think, you know, Dom was, was with hockey refs for a while. Like they were, there were so many people and I was just like, man, you know, this, I, I feel completely out of place. And then I got the job obviously with the athletic, um, and, uh, and then I couldn't work with, with hockey refs anymore. So I only really had the, uh, the one piece and I honestly forget the specifics of it. I know it had, it, it was definitely related to, to zone entries, which is something I did a lot of work with, uh, with, with tracking, uh, the flyers, um, I've done a uh, a penalty kill project on the flyers that was looking at different you know neutral zone four checks um in you know with regards to penalty kills seeing which ones were most effective uh, uh, and then i did a four checking project during uh, 2020 while we were all locked away in quarantine um so definitely love doing research projects when i have a chance it's just it's tougher now that i'm obviously covering a an nhl team on a on a daily basis for the athletic so, yeah, we'll, we'll just say that you're an expert in zone entries because you've been around <laughs> all of those guys. You've done it yourself. So I'm curious from your standpoint, uh, it seems pretty obvious right now that entries that are controlled are the way to go. But um, funny enough, the guy who started it all, Eric Tolsky with Carolina, is one of those teams that really does not rely on carries. And I'd love to hear 
uh, you dive into maybe why that is the case and, and, you know, why the middle of the ice is probably the most crucial. And it doesn't mean just because you're carrying the puck in doesn't mean you're the best team ever. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by zone entries and just the idea of the neutral zone as a whole, just because it's such an important part of the ice. I would argue it's the most important part of the ice, especially if you're talking about territorial play and who's actually controlling the pace of the game. But it's an area of the ice that's very difficult to measure because nothing, you know, that's not where goals are scored. Yeah, you might have the occasional, you know, Radko Gouda shot from center ice that goes in the net, but you know, there aren't going to be goals scored. There aren't going to be goals allowed very often in the middle of the ice. So it's more like a conduit for the events that we really remember. So the idea of being able to quantify who's actually winning the middle of the ice has always been really fascinating to me because I kind of have always viewed it as something of, of like a missing link in terms of understanding hockey and understanding why good teams are good and why bad teams are bad. But yeah, it's fascinating you brought up the, uh, the idea of Eric Tulski because he was really the first person in the public sphere to really dive into the concept of zone entries. He did a, uh, a, um, a paper for Sloan years ago. This was like back, I think in like 2012, 2013, something like that. He went in 2011 like- and then uh, did his, actual presentation in 2013 two years later there we go yeah i knew it was around that year and he worked with you know with Corey schneider who obviously is now you know a legend in terms of of hockey tracking but that was right back when he was getting his start too and worked with a few other people most of whom i don't believe are still doing hockey work but it was like a volunteer project and the big thing that eric found which was you know it, it was it's a it's a great finding because it's intuitive it makes sense but also it was great to quantify the exact rates. And basically what he found is that controlled entry. So, you know, when you carry the puck into the zone with possession, or if you, you know, pass the puck into the offensive zone and the other player receives it cleanly and and enters the zone with possession of the puck, that they tend to be about twice as valuable in terms of generating shots. And later, I believe, uh, I think, I think Jen Lute Costello actually looked up, she, she tracked, uh, scoring chances. And she found that the rate was pretty similar for scoring chances as well, that it's about a two to one ratio that, that control entries are about twice as valuable in terms of offense creation than, um, than, than dump ins. And obviously that was Tolsky's big finding. And he had a ton of other big findings this is why he's, you know, one of the people who's running the show in Carolina, but the Carolina hurricanes are, if you're, if you really watch them and you look at the data that the Corey has tracked and, if you have access to the data that, uh, you know, that the teams have Carolina is one of the teams that is most um, your most dump in centric. They dump the puck in a lot more than they carry the puck in. And you would think that Eric Tolsky, the guy who told everybody how important controlled entries were, would be advocating for his team to carry the puck in all the time, as much as possible. And what it, what's fascinating to me about it is that, it's never necessarily really been about like controlled entries at all costs because there's, there's game theory elements of that where like, if you're trying to carry the puck in all the time, like, yeah, your entries will be better than a dump in, but you'll turn the puck over more. And then the other team will go back down the ice sometimes that they wouldn't have had you dump the puck in and played it a little safer. And then maybe they'll score on a controlled entry of their own. And really what, what, what Eric found and what I think has gotten lost a little bit in it is that, the idea of the neutral zone, it really should be looked at less as a, we have to get controlled entries. They're the best. And it more should be looked at as an equation. And you, you think of it as, you know, okay, like 
you know, control measure, the equation that I use in my head, because these were the numbers that, that Corey had found years ago, is that controlled entries are worth 0.66 of a uh, 0.66 uh, unblocked shot attempts. So basically, every controlled entry on average is going to generate about 0.66 unblocked shot attempts. Every dump-in is going to generate on average about 0.29 unblocked shot attempts. So you basically take those those two and you weight them. So like, let's say a team had, you know, 10 controlled entries in a game and then 10 uncontrolled entries in a game. So you just multiply both those, you know, you multiply 10 by 6.66 and then multiply 10 by, you know, 0.29. And then you figure out what I like, what I tended to call like your, like the expected number of shot attempts that you would generate via your five on five zone entries in a given game. You know, now you obviously can get, fewer or more based on what you actually do in the offensive zone, but that's what you did in the neutral zone. But that's only one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is what you're allowing to the other team. So, you know, let's say, let's say, okay, like I just said that your team has 10 controlled entries and has 10 uncontrolled entries. Well, let's say that the other team has, you know, eight controlled entries and four uncontrolled entries. Okay, well, their controlled entry rate is 66.6%. That's higher than your 50%, but they gained the zone a lot. Like they, they gained the zone less. You know, they only had 12 raw zone entries to your 20 and and you actually had more raw controlled zone entries than they did so they maybe one thing that they might have done is they might have been so dead set on gaining the zone with possession every single time they hit they hit the blue line that they failed on a lot of their entries because sometimes the entry got disrupted sometimes the pass got blocked and then your team went right back down the ice and created an entry of your own and that's the key of it. And that's where, how teams like Carolina succeed, even though they dump the puck in a lot. It's because they're winning the raw volume of zone entries. They're generating just more entries, period, than the other team. And then number two, they're making up for their lower controlled entry rate by just a raw volume of high, of like controlled entry. So if they, you know, if they finish a season with, say, like 2,000 total entries and the other, they, they're allowing 1,700, you know, yeah, they might have a lower controlled entry rate than their, you know, a higher controlled entry rate than, or the other team might have a higher controlled entry rate than, than what they're, what they have, but they actually may have more raw controlled entries than the other team just because they're winning on the volume battle so much. So it's, it's something where I deal, I dealt with this a lot with the flyers because Elaine Vigneault definitely coached a four check centric style five on five. And a lot of flyers fans who were open to the concept of analytics really hated that. Because they were like, well, controlled entries are more important. How can he be coaching a, a four-check centric game? And my thing is like, look, there's problems with his system, absolutely. But the idea of dumping the puck in is not inherently flawed. Like, look at Carolina. They make it work. Like, you can do this and you can succeed. You can outshoot and outchance and outscore the other team, even if you have a 43% controlled entry rate. Like not everybody can be Colorado where they can just gain the offensive zone with control at will, but you have to be winning the raw entry battle and you have to be holding other teams to a low controlled entry rate as well to make up for the inherent disadvantage of dumping the puck in as much as you do. And there's a way that you can do that. Like, let's say you dump the puck in, even if you don't actually get the puck back, if you just forecheck the hell out of that team, then yeah, you might not even create a shot on that play, 
But then you maybe force them to just dump the puck out of the defensive zone, toss it into the neutral zone. You can recover the puck and then create another entry of your own. And suddenly you've got two entries to their zero and now you're winning the volume battle. So that's how like different systems can work. It's not like every team has to be a controlled entry team. You just have to make sure that you're constructing a strategy that fits your talent and also still allows you to win the overall equation in the neutral zone. Well, that was fantastic. Um, yeah, big fan of zone entries controlled better, but there there is a puck management case to it, uh, to which maybe some of the old timers are like, well, no, duh. Sometimes they're more risky than others. You know, I, I thought- it's, it is funny, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but like it is funny how a lot of these things, you know, if you're having a conversation with, you know, an old school hockey fan or even better, if like a former player, you know, someone who is, you know, not into the analytics world, but you can have these conversations and you can find common ground because a lot of the analytics, like, yeah, there are some things that go very much against like old school thinking, but this kind of stuff, like this is intuitive to former players, to old school fans. If you just talk it through with them, because it's all just common sense. The only difference is that, you know, us in the analytics community, we're trying to quantify the exact numbers and we're trying to, you know, rather than just go by gut feel and like, well, this makes sense. Let's try to figure out exactly how you win these battles, exactly how you win the neutral zone and to what degree you win it. Yeah. It's all about optimizing and getting better. And I think that's exactly where I was heading with this is the idea of looking at the flip side as well, because Yes, we're creating more goals, but he also quantified what's coming back. And it was actually less dangerous to do a controlled entry than a dump in entry. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And and as you know, research, usually it's 90% of the time. It's like, yeah, our thoughts were correct. Glad we quantified that and pushing it forward. And then it's that 10% where it's like something like, oh, that's really interesting. Did not expect that. And then following down the rabbit hole. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's the truly fun part is when you, you find something that doesn't match up when a player that, you know, everybody in the game says is awesome. And, you know, yeah, he's a guy I want on my team. And then you, you look at the data and you really drill it down and you realize like, no, Seth Jones, isn't the end all be all of NHL number one defenseman and probably shouldn't be getting a nine plus million dollar contract. Yes. That's massive. And and I think that boils down to the idea of we're using a process to better go at the problems that we're trying to solve. So obviously it's all about winning hockey games in this business. And, you know, no matter what team you talk to, it's all about, Oh, we've got a good process here, but what is really a good process is very uh, up for grabs. And it's a little bit easier to see when you're not in the fight itself and you've got a few steps back so i'm curious for you you're you're watching the flyers which uh, i'm pretty sure everyone in their right mind at this moment in time is being like they may not have the best process out there yeah they're a fascinating team i mean obviously i think they're fascinating because i cover them on a daily basis but you know i mentioned seth jones obviously the flyers have and like seth jones he's a fine defenseman he's just not as good as like in my mind not as good as a lot of people in hockey think he is he's not bad the Flyers have Rasmus Ristolainen, who is probably not a good NHL defenseman, who people in hockey believe is a good NHL defenseman. So the the Ristolainen trade and then subsequent extension that was given to him, that was really a, a, a moment where I think statistically inclined Flyers fans kind of became completely out on this team. 
um, and the people running it. Uh, and I can tell you that, I mean, I've talked to people in the organization and uh, so much of the wrist align and love was driven by this concept of, you know, we have to be tough to play against that, you know, wrist align and fits, you know, the old school flyers mentality of, you know, you're going to go into the corner and you're going to get hit. And, and that's part of the reason why they love him so much is because the organization believes that they have to fit into a certain box. And they say it's because, well, that's what the fans want. And to a degree, that's true. Like there's certainly a lot of fans of Philadelphia that, that love hits. They love fights. It comes from the, you know, the broad street bullies in the seventies and whatnot. That's true. But the thing fans love more than that is they love wins. And if you're trying to build a winning team, you know, someone like Rastris Align, and particularly at the price that the market would price him at, because there's so many teams that value his skill set probably more than they should, having him on your team is going to make it tougher for you to win because we're in a salary cap world and allocating five plus million dollars to a defenseman who probably is like a okay third pair defenseman if he's like your five or your six like if you were paying Rasmus line in a million and a half dollars a year to hit people and take 14 minutes on the third pair like that wouldn't hurt you that'd be fine maybe you could find a, a somebody better at the margins than that you know if you dug up you know a Vince Dunn or something and put him on your third pair and paid him very little money but it's not going to ruin your chances. I mean, we've seen teams, you know, we've seen the blues win with Jay Bo Meester, you know, obviously the avalanche just won with Jack Johnson on their team. Like they, you can win with, you know, not every single player providing, you know, dramatic surplus value in your lineup and on your roster. But when you've got to pay this guy, you know, five plus mil, it makes it a lot tougher. And, like the flyers by still buying into the value of someone like Ristolainen because of their history and because there are, you know, former players and old school people in the front office that still believe that that's like, that you need that kind of player. Not that, and I'm not saying like physicality isn't important. You know, physicality is obviously an important element in hockey. It's just, you want to have players who, hit and are also good and also can use that in a way that allows the team to control play and allows the team to create shots and allows the team to create goals. You can't just get a guy who hits and say, okay, well, we checked that box. Now we got our hitter. Now we're tough to play against. It's like, well, are you, or are you then just going to spend a lot of time in the defensive zone with him running around trying to hit people when he's on the ice and making it on the whole tougher for you to win a lot of hockey games? Games. And that's kind of where I think the Flyers are at a bit too much in terms of mentality. And you could make the argument like, oh, well, it's only wrist aligned. And that's maybe true. You know, maybe the Flyers are looking at it as, well, we've we've got our our hitter. That's it. Now, And, and then they went out and got Yandel. So I, I'm not yeah, sure. Well, yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is that the league is so close right now. Like parity is such a big thing that like. If you want to be a great team, you can't afford to be giving away millions of dollars. You just can't because especially if you don't have, you know, like a Connor McDavid or Nathan McKinnon on your team to help make up some of the gap. And the Flyers certainly don't have that either. Like the only way they were going to succeed with their their strategy of like, we don't have any stars. We're going to overwhelm you with depth is that you need to avoid overpaying anyone. And they haven't avoided that. So they're, they're a team that's trying to win with depth. 
but then they're overpaying guys that makes it tougher to actually keep the quality depth that they want to win with. And this is why they're the predicament they're in. Well said. So I guess this gets to the, the most pure question is what makes good teams good and bad teams bad. It's a, I mean, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, one thing I've, I've been, you know, digging into trying to figure out, okay, like how do the flyers go about fixing this? You know, you obviously need to have, you know, an intelligent plan from the start. You know, you need to have people in your organization who, who know what they're doing from a drafting standpoint, who know what they're doing from a development standpoint, who, who foster, you know, a, a positive atmosphere, you know, in your organization so that you're getting the most out of your players. That's essential. I think the Flyers lacked that for quite a few years where they weren't getting the most out of their prospects and their guys they were trying to develop, you know, maybe were hitting 80, 90% of their plausible ceilings, some even, even lower than that. And that's important. You know, you need to be, if you, if you want to be developing talent, you need to do it in a way that makes sure that you're getting the most out of the guys that you're spending these high draft picks on. So that's really important from the start. But then there's also just the simple fact that you need, you need talent. Like you need the high end talent. Maybe you don't need a Connor McDavid, but you need really good players to be a legitimate cup contender on a yearly basis. You know, you look at Tampa Bay, you know, they obviously have, you know, Stamkos, Kucherov, Hedman, Braden Point. Like they have a bunch of guys who could be the best player on most teams in the, in, in the NHL. Then you look at, you know, you look at Colorado who obviously just won the cup and they have McKinnon and they have Ren and they have Landis and they have McCarr. Like you need those guys. And for the most part, I mean, really like Tampa is an anomaly because they were able to dig up Kucherov in round two and point in round three, but like they still got Hedman and Stamkos right up at the top of the draft. And you look at Colorado, I mean, Colorado got all those guys. Like, Rantanen was the late pick, and he was taken, I think, 10th. Like, McCarr was taken fourth, and uh, McKinnon was taken first. And uh, and who's the one I'm forgetting that I mentioned? Landis Cog was taken, like, third. Byram. Yeah. yeah. And then you got Byram coming because they because of that ridiculous trade that they made. You, you can't – it's really, really, really hard to build a true sustainable contender without those impact top of the lineup guys. And again, I'm not saying you need the best player in the game. You don't need Connor McDavid. Obviously we've seen what Edmonton can and can do with just Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, but you need those guys that either scare defenses or they scare opposing forwards because they're really good at defense. And I'm not even saying like they scare them because like they're going to knock them in the next week. a la like Chris Pronger, but like, I mean, Kale McCarr, you know, he's a legitimately great defenseman, even though he's more of like a, an all around player. Victor Hedman terrifies opposing forwards because he's just a great two way defenseman. And that's something the flyers, for example, completely lack, you know, Claude Giroux was their star player for years and he was that good for a time. He's not that good anymore because he's 33, 34 years old. He's getting older. And now obviously he's not on the team anymore, but like they wasted the years of his, of his career when he was actually like a top tier NHL player. And now they don't which really is, have, which is it, really it, funny because they finally got the goalie and then they have a God awful team in front of them. So then it's like, okay, you finally got the piece. You thought you were missing all these years. And now you've got Rasmus and Yandel and all those guys in front of them. Um, that's flyers hockey. Yeah, yeah. Solve one issue, but you forgot. It's like whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. But you, you were talking earlier about 
development, drafting, and positive atmosphere, are we seeing that flow through the Flyers? It seems like the development staff has done a lot better because you're seeing, like you said, with the Avs, like they're getting their players, but they're also developing them. It took, uh, you know, all those guys, Landis Cog and whatnot, like 10 years until they finally were ready to win the cup. And then obviously Tampa just keeps like growing players out of nowhere. <laughs> like yeah. Ross Colton just shows up and then we've got a Pallad and a Kalorn and Tyler Johnson and all these other guys that have been there in the past and are there currently. And even like you lose a Yanni Gordon, you're still fine. Like yeah. unbelievable. I'm, I'm curious on the flyers. Like what is their plans? Like how do they go about developing their players? Well, I, I think they believe that they've identified some issues. They've definitely done some work kind of turning over the development staff, hiring more people over the last couple of years. So they believe they've identified problems that they, they have fixed. The thing is, is that, and this is the tough part, it goes back to kind of what we were talking earlier about when it comes, comes to process, is that with development, like you're not going to know for another like two, three years whether you've actually fixed your developmental problem. because. Even, I mean, unless you draft a guy in the top two or three, like you're not going to know if these guys are developing the way they should until, you know, two, three, four years after they were drafted. So it takes time. And you might think you fixed the problem, but you don't know for sure until you start seeing results. And even then, you don't know for sure, for sure, because there's things like variance. You know, sometimes guys just get hurt. Sometimes, you know, life changes. Sometimes, you know, there's terrible you, coaching staff. Yeah. Like it, it, there's, there's other issues. There's other variables that go into it. So that's why this is all so hard, you know, it, but it's one of those things where like, when you see it, you know, it in terms of it being done the right way. And like Tampa is a classic example where like, you just, you know, that's not a fluke. They've done it so many times with so many players and so many guys who like you didn't, there was no guarantee they were going to be that good. And then they all seem to become that good. Like the only guy I can think of that, like they really failed to develop was Jonathan Druan. And then they intelligently recognized that they weren't going to be able to develop them the way they thought they were. And then they swapped them for Sergachev and they solved that problem right off the bat. So like, again, this is what smart organizations do. They know more about the players that are in their organization. And if they determine that, Hey, this guy isn't as good as the rest of the league thinks he is, then swap them for somebody who you can do something with. And that's what the smart ones do. That is just smart asset allocating. Not that I'm a wealth advisor or anything like that. I love it. And I think that's something that a lot of teams get wrong, especially the ones that are at the bottom. It's like, no offense. Like, it's a little too much loyalty. Like, you spent the draft pick. That's a sunk cost. Now you have to accurately see where they are and where you think they can go. And they did an unbelievable job at recognizing. We don't think he's got a highest ceiling as we originally thought now that we have him here on a daily basis. And then, boom, you get Sergachev, who's been, you know, top four defensive for him for a long time. So I, I, I love that. and. For, for you, what do you think, you know, bottom teams obviously think they're doing it right, but what are they really failing at? Because I feel like that's something that we don't talk about enough because everyone thinks they're doing the right thing, but obviously some clubs and some teams are better than others. Yeah, I think in truth, I think there's there's a much finer line between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing than, than there has been in a long time. Like the, the, the days of, you know, a team, you know, a team like – the old Toronto teams that were just run so diametrically opposed to analytics where it just seemed like every decision they made was like them trying to like spit in the face of the nerds. And then we got to see what happened with them. 
Like, I don't think any of the teams are at that level anymore. But the thing is that now that pretty much every team does pay attention to this stuff and pretty and every team to a degree is forward thinking. Now it's that, you know, if you fall behind even a little bit, you fall behind a lot because the lines are just much narrower than they used to be. Like, so for example, I mean, you could, if you can be hurt if you're the flyers and you're still grasping onto this old school mentality and wasting cap dollars on players that just aren't that good because you think you need to play a certain way because that's the only way we can play. That's a way that you fall behind. And that's a way that you, uh, you know, you kind of, you aren't, getting the most out of your cap dollars, you know, other teams, you know, they may have a, a a somewhat backwards way of looking at the draft, or maybe they just don't hire enough scouts, or maybe they don't think that analytics can be used to help teams draft. Like there's just like little philosophical things or, or funding things. That's in my mind, how teams can fall behind because it's not like the gap is super large anymore, but because of that, Small differences, small advantages from the smarter teams are going to become large advantages on the ice because that's the only way you can gain an advantage. It's it's so fine, but you got to hit it. Yeah. Got to hit it. Um, maybe the Flyers are one of those teams that are further back than others. We I think we all agreed Montreal two years ago was, and everyone in the right mind knew it was a fluke that they got to the final. Uh, helps when you have a good goalie, right? But it's, it's amazing. Um, how quickly those guys can get run out of town nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things flip and, and who knows, maybe Montreal's on the, uh, on the right path now, um, you know, with their, with their new management and whatnot, but it's going to take time. And that's the, I think that's the thing too. That's another part of this that, I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with because I cover the Philadelphia Flyers, but there's an element, good organizations have patience like good organizations, because there's the, the, the problem with patience, I will acknowledge is like, you can be too patient because you think that your process is good and actually it's bad. And you're like, well, we're just being patient with a good process. But in reality, your entire way of thinking is flawed and you're just spinning your wheels because you think too highly of what you're doing. But then you look at situations like Tampa, where, I mean, they were great for years and then they get upset in the first round, they get swept by Columbus. And it would have been very, very easy for them to be like, you know, this is a bunch of choke artists that just don't have what it takes to win a cup. We need to blow it up. John Cooper's an overrated coach. We need to fire him. Like it would have been very easy by traditional hockey thinking to go that route. And instead they were like, no, we'll make some tweaks. You know, maybe, maybe we have underrated a little bit of this whole, like we need some sandpaper in the playoffs, but like, we're not going to go out and get a Rasmus for Stalinen. We're going to go out and get a Blake Coleman who in addition to being able to do that is also a really, really good player by the numbers. Like that's what smart organizations do. Colorado didn't panic when they had a couple, couple years where they were expected to at the very least get to the cup final and they didn't make it past round two. Like if you truly believe that your process is right and you have legitimate evidence that it is in the form of, you know, strong regular season performances, because in the end, regular season performances are probably more representative of quality of team than playoff performances over the last couple of years, you know, Tampa, Colorado, it's been more representative, but I would say, you know, looking at a team like Montreal, you know, a team like Dallas, like they were the second best teams in hockey and they got to the finals. So, 
you know, if, if you have the, the evidence in the form of strong regular season results that your team is doing the right things in terms of team building and in terms of, you know, creating a, uh, you know, a positive atmosphere for development in terms of just organizational health, then it's not smart to just blow it all up because you're frustrated. And I think that's what bad organizations can do. They can panic and then end up hurting themselves more than if they would have just stayed the course. Yeah. And it's super true with players. Cause it's not linear. Like, and, and yeah, that's life. Like some days you just have some bad days and, but you're heading in the right direction. So um, where I want to head next with this is talk a little bit about IQ. Like what is hockey IQ? How do you watch the game? How are you identifying players that you like? Cause clearly you don't like Rasmus Ristolainen. That is a no go. You know, what is it? You're watching an eye test. You're looking at numbers. You know, how do you evaluate that? How do you evaluate hockey IQ intelligence and how they actually go about uh, getting the results? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I think the numbers are important in that regard because the hard truth is that it's really difficult for anyone, even a seasoned hockey scout to, you know, keep track of every single player on the ice at a given time. Um, you know, you're going to miss things and you're going to, you're, you're going to have preconceived biases of the way you think players should play and what you think, you know, if a guy's really fast, he's going to be noticeable. And then and you're, you might think to yourself, well, he's really fast. He's a great skater. He must be a really good player. He's great on the four check and whatnot. And then you look at the numbers and realize that teams, you know, only collects 45% of the, the shots and chances when he's on the ice. So he's got the speed. Sure. He, he hits on the four check. Absolutely. But he might not have that kind of value. Um, the kind of value that you would think based on the tools that you personally view as important. But, you know, for me, if we're talking about the eye test, and I, and I do place a lot of value on the eye test, you know, when evaluating players, you know, I, I don't, don't think it can be the only thing you have to be looking at the numbers. You have to be, you know, getting evidence, but it definitely helps in understanding what a player is good at, what his weaknesses are. And from a coaching standpoint, it's invaluable because it tells you how to attack players, you know, what, what their strengths are and, and how you would go about trying to break them down in a game or in a series. But, you know, for me, and I'm not saying this like to toot my horn, but I obviously watch a lot of hockey. I track a lot of hockey. I watch a lot of hockey. And when you watch a lot of hockey, you can sort of when, especially when you're watching it from up top, you know, when you're watching it from a press box and a guy has the puck, you can sort of see like what the smart play is, what the right play for him to make is. And you can honestly see it. At least I can, you can see it before he makes it. And I've talked to, to players around the league and they agree that like the game looks so much slower from up top and you can really see the, you can see the ice in a way that a player who's on the ice just can't because everything's just going so fast. It, it's, it's ice level. You don't have that bird's eye view. And the players that I that I I consider to have great hockey IQ are the ones that not only do they always make the play that you think they should make when they have the puck or when they're playing defense or whatever, but once in a while they'll make a play that I didn't even think of, but it's it it works even better. Like I thought I would look at a, a situation and be like you know he should he should bounce that puck off the you know off the sideboards and and hit a streaking teammate and instead he you know, finds a, finds the other winger who is, who is cutting in for like, you know, a two on one or something. 
And it's those guys, the guys who, who just seem to, to see the game even better than I do when I'm watching from up top. Those are the guys that I really look at. I'm like, man, they have great hockey IQ. Like I'll tell you the the one guy I went to a, um, I went to a, a Tampa Bay, Florida playoff game last year. Uh, it was the game where Tampa clinched the series. It was down in Tampa. And like, I've always really, really liked Braden point as a player watching him live just as a fan. Cause like I've covered flyers lightning games, but I was mostly watching the flyers. Like, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll pay attention to some players in the other team, but I'm covering the flyers. So I'm trying to see who on the, the flyers is playing poorly. Who's playing well, just watching that game purely as a hockey fan. Like there were so many times that Braden point did things, particularly without the puck that were just like so brilliant and so subtle that I came away with an even greater appreciation for him as a player because it's not just that he's great with the puck and he scores a lot of points and whatnot. Like he's the kind of guy where like, if, if one of his teammates is coming through the neutral zone, like he will lift the stick of a defenseman trying to poke check so that his teammate can get like a clean lane going into the offense. So just like plays like that, where on TV, you might not even notice it, but when you're watching live and you're seeing the whole picture, you're just like, man, this is a smart hockey player. And, and those are the guys that, that are, in my mind, the most fun to watch because you can watch them away from the puck. They don't even have to have touched the puck on a shift. And you're going to see something that's like, man, he's really, really good at this. That's me and Nikita Kucherov. Every time I watch him, I'm like, that was the right movement to open up. Like, he won't even touch the puck. And he should, you should, like, it was such good movement and how it drugged the other team out of position that he should get an assist for it. And he doesn't. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's some special things with that Tampa team. Um, continuing with seeing from a bird's eye and really evaluating in the eye test, I want to dig into the systems uh, study you ran uh, for the Flyers, particularly with the penalty kill, because I'm a big check plus one uh, type person in the zone. Um, and then I love, I don't know what you called it, but I, I call it the double swing, swing to the puck here, make him make a pass. The second one attaches to the next amount of speed gap up the red like that's how i like to play the game i've always found that effective change it a little bit for what you have on any given team but for you you know as you were evaluating the systems you know what are things that you noticed what kind of evolution you're seeing in the nhl now it seems like pressure is the, the new in thing but i think you you pretty much covered that pretty well back then as well yeah i mean i definitely found that the you know, the pressure based in zone coverages, you know, you had the, the, the check press, the, you know, the box plus one, whatever you want to call it. Um, but those just tended to be much more effective. Now, the one thing I will say is that, you know, there's only so long you can do that for. So, you know, if a team has the puck in the offensive zone on the power play for 30, 35, 40 seconds, like obviously you can't just keep switching between your F1 and your F2 forever because they're just going to get exhausted. They're not going to be able to keep pressuring, you know, the, the half boards and whatnot. You're going to eventually, if you can't get the puck or force them into a, uh, you know, a shot that either goes wide or, or is stopped by the goalie and covered, like you're going to have to sit back at some point, but if you're sitting back from the start on the penalty kill, like you're just, you're just asking for trouble because these guys are just, too talented they all they're all too talented at this point they're all too skilled they will eat you alive if you just sit back and the flyers i mean under under ian laperriere who was their old penalty kill coach they were infuriatingly passive particularly at the end of his uh his time running the penalty kill and 
when they, this was back in 2018, 2019, when they, uh, when they fired Dave Haxtell and they basically brought up Scott Gordon from the minors to be the head coach. They kept LaPerrier in his, in his position nominally, but like Gordon has always been kind of a PK guy. So he sort of took over like unofficial management of the penalty kill and he immediately instituted like a more pressure based system. And it immediately got a lot better. Like this stuff isn't rocket science, you know, NHL players are going to do worse when under puck pressure than if just given free reign on the half boards to just look for an open guy and Flyers fans more than anybody know that because they watch it happen to Claude Giroux, you know, Claude Giroux, if you gave him, particularly when he was in his prime, if you gave him a few seconds of not being pressured on the half boards, he was going to find Wayne Simmons, or he was going to find Braden Shen, or he was going to flip it across the, across the slot to Jake Voracek. Like he was just a wizard in terms of passing. And the only way you had a chance of surviving. And even then, sometimes obviously he would still make a great play, but if you got on him, if you had somebody coming from a, above pushing him down, you know, down towards the goal line or some, or, you know, have somebody coming from the side. Like at least you would have a shot. At least you would have a shot of, of, of forcing him into a turnover or, you know, making him make a play before he wanted to something like that. And I do agree with you that over the last, you know, three, four years, it seems like most teams have come around on that way of thinking that, you know, the, it's not, it's not playing it safe to play it safe on the penalty kill because you act, Actually, it's the opposite of safe. You know, you are putting yourself in a position to just get destroyed if you sit back and just hope that another team's going to make a mistake because they're just they're all too good. They're not going to make mistakes very often. Yeah, these these guys are good. And you put it down the system a little bit. I mean, pressure is just such an effective thing. I think the thing that you really uncovered there was you can't do it at all all the time. Like you need to f- pick your spots. I, I call those like the pressure keys. Like you got to yeah. know when to pressure and where and how you're trying to do it. So it's very coordinated. I think it's why Carolina is really good. Um, obviously, the Leafs stole their PK coach and uh, took a lot of those elements, but the timing just wasn't the same. They weren't on the same page as Carolina has done it for years. Um, again, you know, Tolski just killing it over there. He's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I have for us is I know you did your four check study. We can touch on that, but otherwise, uh, you know, what do you want to talk about? I'll, I'll let you run the show here. You're, you're the new host. Yeah, sure. I mean, I could talk about the four check study just cause that was, that was interesting to me. Um, you know, really interesting because it was just something that, you know, I had never seen anybody go into that kind of depth about, you know, F1, which players are really good F1s, which players are really good F2s. Like, are there some players that are better as the second guy in on the four check than the first guy in on the four check? What kinds of players are the best four checkers? Um, And the one thing that I found fascinating coming out of that study, and again, this is something that like might not be intuitive, but when you think about it, it probably does make sense. Like, I feel like a lot of times we think about the four check where it's like, well, the Skill players, you know, they gain the zone with possession and they just try to score. But it's like, it's the grinders. It's the third and fourth line guys that are the real four checkers. They're the ones that are going to grade out well in a study like this. And not, don't get me wrong. Like the guy who graded out the best in my four checking project was Nicholas Albay Cubell, who, who now just won a Stanley Cup. Like he was the best four checker on the Flyers. So like that is true to a point. But like, then you had right after him where like, it was like Claude Giroux. James Van Riemsdyk, Jake Voracek. Like it, it, it maybe shouldn't have been surprising, but it was a little surprising to me that like, no, 
the most talented players are also the most talented four checkers. Like they might not be coming in and laying a big hit because that's not their game, but because they're smart players in the offensive zone period, they're going to be naturally better at identifying passing lanes. They're going to be naturally better at anticipating, you know, what a defenseman is going to do and making it tough on him to break the puck out of the uh, break the puck out of the defensive zone. And it just kind of goes back to that, that thing where like, if you're a good player, you're a good player. You know, yeah, there are some players who are probably forechecking specialists like Nicholas Albay-Cubell was that year and was to a degree with Colorado as well after they picked him up off waivers. But for the most part, the best forecheckers are probably the best players because it, it all it's different skill sets, but it all kind of plays into that idea of like hockey IQ, anticipating the play, reading the play and just, you know, outworking you know, outskilling the, uh, the opposing defenseman. So that was a takeaway from that project that it wasn't necessarily super intuitive from the start, but when you thought about it, you're like, no, it makes sense that the best players are going to be the best players. Even when we're talking about a specialized skill, like for checking. And, and what was the skill set maybe you saw from an effective F1 compared to an effective F2? Yeah, I didn't see a huge difference actually between like the people who graded out well as F1 versus F2. Um, the only guys who I saw big differences were players that didn't have particularly large sample sizes. Like, for example, Morgan Frost, like I didn't have a large sample size of his play, but he graded out extremely well as an F1 and then extremely poorly as an F2. So that's one of those things where, okay, like let's go, let's go back and look at this. You know, is this that he has some sort of, you know, odd skill set that allows him to be a great F1, but makes him, you know, hesitant or passive when he's coming in as a second guy, or are we just dealing with like, he only played 25 games for the team that year. And it's a small sample. And the more I went back and watched the tape, I think it was probably just a small sample, but like, I'm sure there are players that are like that. There are probably players that like get more amped up to be the first guy in on the four check. And they're going to be better in that role than, than F2. And that's the kind of stuff that if you're doing these, these projects, you know, for the entire league, you know, or for a whole team over multiple seasons and you're building up larger samples, you know, maybe you can take that into account when you're putting together line combinations, you know, like, okay, this guy thrives as the F1. So let's put him with two guys who don't necessarily love to be the first guy in on the four check. So that could just be his role. He can almost always be F1 because they like to be a little bit, they have to cruise a little bit more through the neutral zone, you know, or they like to you know set up deeper in the defensive zone. So they're just taking a longer road to the offensive zone. Like that's so fascinating. That's extremely fascinating stuff for coaches. And I'd like to think that the more analytically savvy teams those are the kind of questions that, you know, when the coach meets with the analytics department, that that's the kind of stuff they talk about. Because to me, that's where you're talking. I mean, as I said earlier, you're talking about like, you know, the, the margins between the great teams and the bad teams in terms of knowledge, like it's not huge, but you got to find those, you know, those, those, those hidden, those hidden things that not everybody knows. And I'd like to think that the, the smartest teams are the ones that are having those kind of conversations. Cause it strikes me that they could, have a lot of value in areas like line construction that we might look at it from a public sphere and say, well, it doesn't really matter all that much because, you know, we don't have the large samples. We don't have the kind of quality of data that teams have, you know, teams that can really look at things granularly and can do it in a way where they're confident that there's actual, you know, basis behind observations you know, their statistical significance and whatnot, I would think you can make a lot of really, really cool decisions based on data if you're getting that granular. Awesome. 
Well, this was a fantastic episode. So uh, thanks for coming on. I'll give you two minutes. Anything you want to talk about or you got another subject you want to bring up, I'm happy to dive into it because I, I'm, I'm, I'm riled up now. You're talking about good forechecking, carrying the puck in, uh, how Rasmus Rasalainen is terrible and not a good fit. Uh, I mean, we're talking about pressure-based PKs. Like these are some of my favorite things here, man. I'm I'm, ex- I'm excited. Yeah, I think I've I've pretty much kind of run the run the gamut here. Um, obviously, I write for the Athletic, so if you're uh, if you're not a Flyers fan but you want to read my stuff, um, you know, I'd like to think it has appeal just beyond you know Flyers coverage, particularly when I'm doing my more stat-based things. I do season review articles all summer on each of the individual players, and obviously, there's going to be a lot of a lot of stats in those, a lot of breaking down, you know, tape and and usage. Um, so those are certainly worthwhile if you're interested in reading some more of my stuff. And I'm on a, a Flyers centric podcast called BSH Radio for uh, for Broad Street Hockey, the uh, the SB Nation site that covers the Flyers. So if you want to hear me on another podcast, I'm on that weekly. So feel free to check it out. Awesome. Well, I look forward to coming on and talking about Emil Andre, and uh, we'll have a lot of fun. <laughs> nice, nice. Sounds good. Thanks, All Greg. Right. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you, Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.